Second Timothy chapter one, verse one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled up with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I am sure that it is in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this word. We ask, Lord, as we begin our study in Second Timothy, we ask that you would um, help us to see the context that this letter was written, that we would feel the heart, emotion. Lord, truly, this last will and testament of, of the Apostle Paul, Lord, we pray that you would um, just help us to experience it in its fullness. And we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen. So sort of an introduction to Timothy. My, my plan today is that we have these seven verses to look at. Uh, and, in, and we'll look at them, but I also want to sort of give the, the backdrop, the setting that we would understand what's happening in this letter. We're going to look at Paul and Timothy. If you'll look with me at the very first couple of verses here, we see uh, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus. It's beautiful, this, this, this promise of life in Christ. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know that this letter is written from Paul to Timothy. This is a, a very, very personal letter uh, between Paul and Timothy, these two men who knew each other very, very well, almost father and son relationship. When Paul speaks of Timothy, he refers to him as his son. In light of this relationship, this opening is very different. It's very almost formal as he starts out. And many believe that the, the formality, this, this, ex, this, this Paul addressing himself and describing himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, it shows that Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, but he also anticipated and encouraged this letter to be basically passed around from church to church, literally for centuries, that this letter is very much applicable to us. And that if Paul was here today, I think he'd want us to say, yes, this word applies to you who follow Christ at Valley Baptist Church. It's powerful. And so what we know about 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy is referred to as one of the pastoral epistles. Epistle is a letter. There are three pastoral epistles in the New Testament. We have 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. All three letters are written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy and Titus, his sort of these young men that he had sort of raised and discipled in the faith and then commissioned them into the ministry. They each have sort of their setting, but, uh, but in large part, they're, they're written to help them as young pastors in the ministry in which they'd been called. Now, there are epistles in the New Testament that are referred to as general epistles, I guess because there's no sort of special, unique circumstance behind them. Um, there are what are referred to as prison epistles. Now, normally when you ask people what are the prison epistles, they'll say there are four prison epistles. And the four are Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. Now, those imprisonments of Paul were under his first arrest. He, towards the end of Acts, was arrested. He spent two years in Caesarea, and then he made his way to Rome. Uh, that arrest, I don't want to say it was a pleasant arrest, but it was the conditions were much nicer. He was under house arrest. He had some freedoms. It, 
I think it would be the equivalent today of a person who was under arrest that had to wear like an ankle bracelet. So they were monitored. They had limitations of what they could do. People were free to come and go to help them. And under that arrest, Paul wrote those four letters. Now, I don't know why Second Timothy isn't often included because Timothy very much, even though it's a, a pastoral epistle, Second Timothy, this truly is a prison epistle. This imprisonment of Paul was very different than his other imprisonments. This, he knew he was facing capital punishment. He would die. He knew it. The conditions were, were very, very different. He was in a pit with nothing, chained to the ground like an animal, cold. By the end of this letter, he's begging Timothy, bring my cloak or my jacket and please get here before winter time. He knew that he was facing his execution and he would be executed. Now we're going to get more into the backdrop of this story. But we have to feel, or I would say that I have a, I have a responsibility to sort of to paint the context so that you feel the weight of the words of what's going on. You know, last night I feel a little jet lagged this morning. So yesterday was a great day. Anna's little, she's like a baby sister to me. Literally, Anna's baby sister had her baby. And so we were super excited and she was due like on Monday, she was, would be two weeks late. And so they're kind of waiting and, and in Anna's family, a lot of the men in the family are pastors. And so it's like, and the babies start coming near Sunday, that's pretty inconvenient for us, you know? So we're kind of like, she's due on Monday. We're like, Monday's a perfect due date. Let's, she comes on Monday. We can kind of lounge around, go see the baby, hang out. Last weekend passes, nothing happened. Okay, we're back to Monday. We're like, clear hot. Okay, go Maria. Come on, kid. Come on out. We're ready. And then the days keep ticking by. And then there's action. There's sort of then we get to like Thursday. Things are sort of picking up. Then we get to Friday and it's like still no baby. And then we're Saturday. And then we're like Saturday afternoon. We're like, no, 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 no. Let's slow things down. Let's slow things down. Sunday evening works way better. There's a leadership meeting. How about Sunday evening? Let's hold the horses, kid. Let's hold. And so then yesterday afternoon, things are like picking up. And it's like, we think this baby's coming. And we're like, no. Okay, so then Anna is like, really wants to be at church. And she's like, she understands. Like, oh, if it happens at three in the morning, if it happens up to this time, maybe I can just zip down there. Or maybe if it comes at three in the morning, then I'll like, uh, um, you can watch the kids. I'll zip down there, zip back. And then, or maybe I'll take the kids and I'll make it in time to come to church. And, or maybe, but what if the baby comes like in the middle of church? Then, Then maybe I'll zip down there and she has this whole flow chart. In her head. And so dinner, I'm looking at her, I'm like, so, uh, so that's your plan? And she's like, yes. And I'm like, do you want to hear my plan? And she's like, sure. I'm like, how about when the baby comes, we just all go. I don't care if it's at three in the morning or if it's at three. You can miss church. It's okay. <laughs> like, it's your sister. So I said that, and then it's like seven o'clock. It's like, we're going down. Things are getting real here. It's like, okay, kids, like, Get your teeth brushed. Get your pajamas on. We leave from Valley Center by 8. We get down there by 9.15. Grace is like not so happy because she thought that when you go for a baby being born, that by the time we got there, the kid would be ready to be held and kissed. And then an hour, a couple hours, you know, so we were home. The baby came. Everybody was healthy, totally happy and exciting and got home at like 12.30 or so. And so I'm feeling a little jet lagged today. And But on the way down there and the way back, I am tying this in. So I've been studying 2 Timothy. This is a, when I read 2 Timothy, I imagine Paul going to his execution. And so last night going down there for this birth of life, there was just, I don't know that the thoughts have matured. And then after the baby came, I'm like, hey, we need to get out of here. So can we like pray or whatever? And then they're like, yeah, let's pray. And then everybody's like looking at me. I'm like, oh, I'm not the only pastor. And it's like, well, you're up. So I'm like crying, praying for this new this beautiful boy thinking about his life with the words of Paul at the very end, encouraging the next generation to, 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 to run their race for Christ. It was overwhelming. And then on the way home, the kids are asleep and I put the CD of second Timothy in and I'm just, it's a dark night heading up the road and, and listening. Well, not, I was listening to Max McLean, but, but Max McLean was Paul in that moment, listening to him read this letter and if this letter was, was a movie and we were opening up this, this, this scene, I imagine it would be a dark scene. 
And whenever it's heavy, it's always raining, right? And so I would imagine the sound of rain and we'd, we'd, we'd get this really cold, cold, dark feeling in this pit. And through the, the moonlight, you would picture the image of this man shivering, hungry, that maybe the clank of like water dripping through the walls and chains, that steel metallic sound. And then Paul's voice would come out speaking this letter. And as you listen to it, and if you can find, I mean, there's audio versions of the Bible. You can listen to this in like probably five, ten minutes. And if you listen to it and you hear the, the words, they, they speak for themselves. Paul, knowing that he was going to his death, wanting to pass the baton on to Timothy, hoping to see him one last time. It's beautiful. And Paul is so well known amongst Christians that it's it's sometimes my inclination is just to fly over. Yeah, Paul, you know, the guy that we spent all last year with in Romans. Well, he's back. And just to kind of fly over. But I want to take the time to who was Paul? What do we know about Paul? And the best place to go for discovering who Paul is. Is Acts chapter 22. So if you would turn with me to Acts chapter 22. And before we, uh, you can turn there to Acts chapter 22, we're going to sp- look at a few verses. A- and when I read Paul's writings, I feel like I've read a- enough of his writings that I-, I get this picture of him. And as I read his boldness and his power, this, this image of like a tall man, tall Jewish guy, strong, just power of presence sort of comes to mind from his words, but but my image is so far from the truth. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul describes himself as that he's not a good looking man and he's a horrible speaker. When he starts talking about his critics, this is what Paul writes. He says, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his personal presence is unimpressive and his speech is contemptible. So Paul wasn't a great speaker. Maybe he's a little, a short, little scrawny guy. I think of, well, I don't want to say, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think of like, well, never mind. Maybe like, like, can I say nerdy computer guy, like with glasses, no offense to, but like just a guy who like crunches numbers and like very, very intellectually minded. But I know that that can't be true because he was a tent maker. So I, I think that that kind of lends into my, my image of this big, strong, muscular man. So clearly, I want to clearly, uh, I think like it's like this strong, skinny, tough, but unimpressive looking man. He was Jewish. So have an image of a Jewish man. Uh, MacArthur's description, I like this, or MacArthur quotes a second century writer who I don't know who it is. Described him of a man of small stature with a bald head and crooked legs in a good state of body with eyebrows meeting and nose somewhat hooked, full of friendliness, for now he appeared like a man. I don't know, it's kind of confusing towards the end, but he kind of this, just this different image of him. And so in Acts chapter 22, what, what had happened here, before we look at our text, uh, the, Acts begins in Jerusalem. The story unfolds. There's Pentecost. We see Peter and the... The, the, the original disciples or apostles that followed Jesus, we see them being filled with the spirit and, and this sort of this explosion of the church throughout Jerusalem and, and Israel really truly reaching the Jewish people. And then around Acts chapter eight, nine, Paul sort of comes on scene and and with within a little amount of time, he sort of takes center stage of Acts. We see him persecuting the church and and ultimately converting. And and so as the story unfolds, he goes around, he does a couple missionary journeys, he plants a bunch of churches. And while he's out, he feels convicted. I need to go back to Jerusalem. Everywhere he goes, they're, they're telling him, don't go back to Jerusalem. If you go back to Jerusalem, you're going to be killed that you all don't go, Paul, don't do this to us. And he says, God has called me. I don't care if I die. I'm going back because that's what God wants me to do. And so he ends up in, he ends up in Jerusalem. He makes his way. He goes, let me back up. 
I'm tired. My brain is sort of like unwrapped back up the thought here. He gets to Israel. He lands in Caesarea. They warn him there, don't go to Jerusalem. He's like, I've got to go. He makes it to Jerusalem. When he gets to Jerusalem, he meets James, Jesus' brother, who's the leader of the church there, predominantly Jewish people who had believed in Christ. Paul gets there and he says to James and the other leaders, it's amazing what God has been doing. He's reaching all of these Gentiles. They're coming to Christ. Amazing things are happening. And the, the apostles all together in their maturity, they, they rejoice. They praise the Lord. They're excited. And then James says, but I have a problem back here. See, my problem is God's been doing a bunch of great stuff in Jerusalem too. And a bunch of the, 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 the Jews who are zealous for the law, they're converting to Christ. And, and in their conversion, they're still very zealous for the law. And they haven't come to understand how God's working between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so I have this problem because rumors are going around about you and how you view Jewish believers. And I don't know if Paul said, oh, great, this again. You know, I don't know what he was going through, but James is like, but what we could do, there's these three or four guys, they're, they're, they've taken this vow, they need to go to the temple. Could you pay their way, go participate with the cleansing ceremony with them? Paul says, of course I will. So he goes and he participates. They think if he, they see him at the temple worshiping as the Jewish men did, that it would sort of calm everybody down. And over the course of a few days, a week, those people that were antagonizing Paul see him and they say, he brought these Gentiles into the temple. And this huge riot, nobody has a clue what's going on. They start beating Paul, the and Paul says, hey, you're allowed to beat Roman citizens now? And they're like, uh-oh, let's, let's take him into the barracks, try to figure out what's going on. And when Paul talks to them, they're like, you're not that guy that started a riot down. What is going on? And so our story in Acts chapter 22, they're about to take Paul into the barracks to, to stop the crowd. There's this, this riot on their, uh, on their hands. And as they walk in, Paul in the in chapter the end of chapter 21 says can i address the crowd can i speak to them and so that's where we pick up and paul as he addresses this crowd in verse 1 of chapter 22 he says brethren and fathers hear my defense which i now offer to you and when they heard that he was addressing them in hebrew dialect they became even more quiet now you have to understand during this history during this season and time when when alexander the great conquered the world one of the things that he had done is he scattered the Jews, the Jews were scattered. The, the world was being conquered. He forced that everybody speak Koine Greek. It was the common language. The Jews that had been scattered lost their ability to speak in the original language. Only a, a, a very small portion of the, the Jews maintained their ability to speak in Hebrew. And so Paul, as he starts addressing them in Hebrew, the crowd's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. This guy speaks Hebrew. This is what's going on. And so he continues, he said to them, verse 3, I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in the city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as you all are today. He's like, I'm a Jew. I was born in Cilicia. This is modern day Turkey. He said, I grew up here. But clearly he came from a wealthy family. So he essentially went to boarding school, for lack of better terms, and he was raised in Jerusalem. And so he studied in Jerusalem and he says here that he studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the top tiered rabbis. See, in our day, we we have schools where if you want to grow in your uh, anything, uh, education, uh, religion, you go to schools and the school's reputation sort of dictates the quality of your education. But then the educators were a person. So you tried to study under a person. And Gamaliel was this very well-respected guy. And in this, it says a lot about Paul. So for the first uh, five to ten year range for male Jewish boys, everybody, regardless of what your vocation would be, your education, your elementary training was to study the first five books of the Bible. You would memorize it. You would, they would use the scriptures to teach you how to, how to read, how to write, um, all of the things that were necessary. After, by ten years old, most of the young children, almost all of them basically went back to their family and they continued in their family trade. This was true of, uh, of all of the apostles. They were fishermen, tax collectors, various trades. But those 
between the ages of five and ten, when they reached ten, those that showed exceptional giftedness, those could advance to the next tier of training from the ages of ten to fifteen, and they would continue to memorize the whole Old Testament. And every time I say that or I read that, I just shake my head and say, That can't be true. I have a hard time memorizing one verse. And they would memorize the whole Old Testament as part of their education. And I mean, it was an oral tradition, so they were more used and more familiar to this than, than, than we are. But then of those kids, a, a, a very, very few that had made it through the second round, at that point, they would be able to go study under a rabbi. And the process of studying under a rabbi, you basically went and found the rabbi, you walked with the rabbi, the rabbi would begin to ask you questions, pick your brain, ask theological whatever, how would you handle this? And only one out of a thousand, they believe, would be selected to study under a rabbi. And so Paul was one of these guys who studied a rabbi. So as he's addressing this crowd and says, I grew up in the city. My family lives in, in, in Tarsus of Cilicia, but I, I grew up here. I studied under Gamaliel. What he's saying is that he has the pedigree and education that pretty much trumps everybody in that audience. And he's going to basically build the case. Like, certainly you guys just have a misunderstanding about what, what I'm doing and what I'm saying. And knowing Paul, clearly I think he wants to lead a bunch of these guys to Christ. Doesn't, it doesn't turn out that way. So in verse 4, he continues his story. He said, I persecuted the way, that's the church, Christianity, to the death. Don't just gloss over that. Like, Paul, as a Jewish man found other Jews who had professed Jesus as the Messiah and he killed them. Binding and putting both men and women into prisons. As also the high priest and all the council and elders can testify from them. I also received letters to the brethren and started off for Damascus in order to bring even those who were there to Jerusalem as prisoners to be punished. So Jerusalem is sort of like in the southern part of Israel. You have the Dead Sea. Just, just northwest of the Dead Sea, you have Jerusalem. If you go a significant distance north and then to the east, you'll come to modern-day Syria. If you make the journey to Israel, one of the places that you will go is to the Golan Heights, and you'll stand on the Golan Heights because the Golan Heights is still to this day a very strategic military um, position for Israel to guard itself. You'll stand there and you'll look across the valley and you'll see the Syrian flag flying. And that's the road that Paul was walking on to go arrest people, to bring them back to Jerusalem. This is a significant distance. So when he says, hey, you guys think you're zealous by arresting me? I more so. I was, I had, I I had orders and I was executing them to go to Damascus to arrest them, to bring them back here to be tried. But on that road, he met Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. He shares a story about this light appeared to him. Those, those that were with him could hear the voice but not see. And he lost his vision. And through this, he came to understand that, that Jesus was the Messiah. It's beautiful. He says, it happened when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying to the temple that I fell into a trance and I saw him, that's Jesus, saying to me, make haste, get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. So Paul converts to Christianity. The church is a little skeptical of Paul. <laughs> when he comes to faith, they like, <laughs> we know who this guy is. This is just some ploy to kind of figure out like our church roles, like, who's a believer and he's going to act like he's one of us just so he can arrest us and kill us so they weren't too like kosher i guess is what is okay to say with paul being a part of their group but eventually barnabas comes to his side and he testifies he's like i've been with this guy you can trust him so then he comes back to jerusalem he's at the temple he's worshiping jesus at the temple and while he's worshiping the lord the lord gives him this vision he says you got to get out of town. They're not going to accept your testimony here. They're going to kill you. I need you to leave. And Paul in verses 19 and 20, maybe even 21, no, 19 and 20, Paul's sort of like, but God, like they know I killed all these Christians. Certainly now that I've converted, they're going to like, 
They're not going to turn on me. Come on. He says, verse 19, and I said, Lord, they themselves understand that in one synagogue after another, I used to imprison and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I was standing by approving and watching out for the coats of those who were slain him. I said, Lord, certainly you've got something wrong. It's okay for me. They understand how bad I hated those that trusted in you. My converting is a big deal. But God says, God said to him, or he said to me, go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And you see this calling in Paul's life that God said, I've called you to reach the Gentiles. Really genius on God's part, because as the Gentiles are being grafted in with the Jews, who better to do this than a Jew who had like the education pedigree that could trump any Jewish person to show them God's plan of redemptive history, that it would be the Jews and Greeks together, Gentiles together. But when he said this, at the mention of his calling to the Gentiles, the whole crowd sort of erupts. In verse 22, we're not going to study all of this. But the story basically unfolds. Uh, Paul ends up in Caesarea, sort of they're trying to protect him. They know that they're trying to um, run an assassination team to kill Paul in the midst of his being transferred from place to place. He ends up in Caesarea. He's in Caesarea. Uh, which is on the coast, beautiful area. It's Club Med. It was Herod's palace. I mean, chariots and theaters and beautiful waters. I mean, it's a beautiful vacation spot. Um, They send him there for two years trying to sort out his trial. You watch Acts, the the guys that are in charge say, well, uh, I'll send him, but you guys got to give me some charges because I... I'll get in trouble if I arrest this guy and say, well, he's just kind of like, I guess he's upsetting people or something. I you know, they claim that this guy is dead and he says he's alive. I don't know what's going on. And eventually through this whole process, Paul as a Roman citizen says, I appeal to Caesar. And he makes his way to Rome all under arrest. He spends time in Rome. Eventually he's released. And I think I'm going to pause there with history on Paul because we're going to come back. Hopefully, I don't have everybody confused in my tiredness. So this is Paul. Now, who's Timothy? You're going to go back to 2 Timothy. Paul introduces Timothy. Uh, In Acts, we see three missionary journeys. On the first missionary journey, Paul meets Timothy. Paul leads Timothy to Christ. On the second missionary journey, going through with the good news, Basically, that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. He goes through with the good news on the second journey. Timothy is with him on the second, the second missionary journey. The circumcision was like the talk of the town. This was the big, how do Jews and Gentiles, how do we worship together? Do the Gentiles have to convert to Judaism? Is that the issue? If they're not circumcised, are they not saved? They have this big sort of uh, strained conference in Acts chapter 15, it's basically concluded that the Gentiles don't have to be circumcised. There were three things that they asked him to do. I find it hilarious because Timothy is uncircumcised going with Paul. Acts 15, you see, you don't have to be circumcised. Acts 16, hey, Timothy, we have our one little stop we have to make. I'm assuming that Paul was a rabbi, so Paul was credentialed to do the circumcision. He says, I I need to do something to you real fast here. We We need to have you circumcised. Timothy, like, Paul, I got the letter right here. We don't have to be circumcised. We're going to tell them that you don't have to be circumcised, but you're telling me that I got to be circumcised right here? Like, time out. And then Paul explains, like, listen, this will just, it'll be better for the message if you're circumcised. It'll create less tension. And so Timothy's circumcised. They tell the message, and Timothy's with Paul this, this whole time. While Paul's arrested for the i don't know this first time but it's when he writes the prison epistles from rome there's a little letter philippians that we know about that that's his letter of encouragement paul writes them and in his letter to them he writes kind of concerning his feelings on this man timothy and in philippians chapter 2 verses 19 through 23 this is what paul writes about timothy he says but i hope in the lord Jesus, to send Timothy to you shortly so that I may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. 
For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me in the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Therefore, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I see how things go with me. See, at the first imprisonment, Paul didn't know if he was going to be killed there also. And so he's trying to encourage this church in Philippi. And he says, I'm going to send you Timothy. And when he talks about Timothy, he describes him as Paul's kindred spirit. That when the interests of the ministry come up, there's nobody closer to Paul than Timothy. that They can trust him. This is the the highest letter of recommendation that somebody could give somebody that Paul loved Timothy, that they, they, they serve Christ linking arms together. He viewed him as a son. We know that Timothy from second Timothy in the very beginning there in verse five, Paul speaks of the faith that was found in Timothy's grandmother and mother. We don't know about his dad. There's speculation. We know that he was, a Gentile. He was not Jewish. He either abandoned the family or died early in his life. By the end of Second Timothy, we see that his grandma and mom invested in Timothy, teaching him the scriptures of the Old Testament, laying the foundation to kind of prepare him for how Christ would use him later on. It's, it really is a beautiful relationship. So as we go through Second Timothy, I don't want to say it's a love story, but this is, these are sort of like brothers in arms, like men who have served together, who have sweated together, who have bled together, who have sacrificed all for the cause of Christ. And now the mentor is facing his execution. I imagine that Timothy, when he got this letter, would be weeping, reading this, knowing like, would I even get a shot to see Paul again? And in this letter, why it's so important for us as a church, like why are we going through this letter? Is every few years, you know, I don't get, I don't have any cycle laid out in my head, but every few years, I think it's important for us as a church to go through the pastoral epistles. We've done First Timothy, we've done Titus, now we're doing Second Timothy, and the reason is, is that it's very important. For us to maintain our bearings as a church. Why, why do we exist? What are we called to do? This, is, is what we're doing here a social club? The answer is no. Before you answer out loud. This is not, it is not a social club. We do social things for, for, for relationship and friendships. And, and developing trust. And so for me as a pastor. It's super important for me to go through this. But this isn't just written to pastors. It's written for all of us to understand why do we do what we do here? We at the church, we're at a very exciting time for the last few years. I think it's been like three years. I've been feeling this weight of just not being able to keep up. Like when there were eight people or 12 people or however many, it was so easy to kind of stay on top of everything. But now like there's just, there's enough people. I just, I, I always feel like uh, things are slipping through the cracks and over the last, I don't know, year and a half or so, I've been thankful for Ben who shows up. You know, Ben, he was active duty Navy. I think technically he's still active duty for a couple more days, just on terminal leave. So Ben was here for a year as a Navy chaplain. And I remember I went up to him. I said, hey, man, I know you're like, like whatever you're doing next. I, you know, there's times when I need weekends off. If you want to like, if you want to preach, would you be interested in preaching? Like, I'd love to preach and serve and however. And I'm like, dude, I'm going to use you for as long as you're here. Like I'm going to, you cleared me hot. I, I like, I need to be able to get some rest. I need to be able to get some, like to, to try to, you know, like to move forward. And so it was really great. And during that time, a couple, I remember Rick Restivo talking with Rick. Rick's like, well, I want to bring him on to, the, to be an associate pastor of the church. I'm like, Rick, yeah, he's, he's civilian. You don't understand how the military works. They like, he's only with us for like a year and a half. And then he's going to get orders somewhere else so we can, Use him now, but he's going to be gone. And I think it was about nine months ago, Brett over here, I remember I was feeling the same sort of weight. I'm like, I feel like God's leading me to do something. He's like, Gunner, just breathe. You don't have to do everything. Like you, like help is on the, like you, you need help. And so all around this time to hear that like 
you know, that Ben finds out that he's getting passed over the Navy, which essentially means he's getting out of the Navy. And then we have our six month journey of sort of praying like where he's going. You know, he wanted to be institutionalized. So, you know, he was going to head to a federal penitentiary. But then he felt like God was really calling him here. I felt the same thing. And 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 so we've sort of been softly introducing him in a couple of weeks. We're going to actually like pray, lay hands on him and pray for him on the second. And and um, and so I'm really excited. But because of this time, I'm saying all this because we as a church are entering it like a, another new season. And so whenever we have these seasons, it's important that we we, we come back. I mean, we're always in the Bible, but to, 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 to kind of focus on this this letter of Second Timothy, these, these, this pastoral epistle. What does Paul have to say to Timothy? So much in this, there's so many powerful, like what we know as verses are in this, this, this letter. But when you read them all together, it really creates this, this bone-chilling sort of speech of Paul to Timothy that, that we need to hear. But it wasn't all rosy. When we went through Romans, I, I mentioned multiple times that as the gospel made its way to Rome, the emperor at the time was Claudius. The Jews ha- had those who had trusted in Christ and those who didn't trust in Christ. Uh, the believing Jews in Jerusalem or in Rome, excuse me, began sharing their faith with the non-believing Jews, and it created tension. And as these tensions surfaced, Claudius was sick of this, so he expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. Eventually, Claudius was poisoned, and he died, and Nero came to power. When Nero came to power, the Jews were welcomed back in. And Nero seemed fairly stable for some years and if my mind is is correct right now i believe that he got married and when he got married things sort of he sort of went crazy one of the things he did was he burned down rome and that didn't go over well politically for him (laughs) and so in order to try to get back into it he thought well i'll just i'll blame it on the christians and he was very successful And so this hatred for Christianity grew and developed to the point when they had their games, uh, in order to light the arenas, what they would do is they would grab Christians alive, put them on the stake, set them on fire so Christians are being burned to light the arena. It was horrible. His attack against Christianity continued all the way to AD 70 when Jerusalem was toppled and basically destroyed. And then this was the period when Paul finds himself under arrest. This was not a pleasant arrest. Paul knew he was facing his execution. It was a very uh, difficult time for the church. A a historian, uh, Tacitus, writes this concerning this point in the, the history of Christianity. He says, their death, speaking of Christians, was made a matter of sport. And they were covered in wild beast skins and torn to pieces by dogs or were fastened to crosses and set on fire in order to serve to, to serve as torches by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition of his circus mingling with the crowds in a guise of a charioteer or mounted on his chariot. Hence, there arose a feeling of pity because it was felt that they were being sacrificed not for the common good, but to gratify savagery of one man. This was a brutal, brutal period for christianity we speak in america like oh we're facing persecution because you fill in the blank that's not persecution that's not persecution this is true persecution and so these words of paul it's i want us to get the 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 power, the love, the intensity. And so we look at verse 3 of chapter 1, and he says, I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you, even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. 
That may seem like, oh, that's really sweet, but if you let your mind kind of picture Paul in that moment, it's enough to bring tears to your eyes. Here he is in a dungeon, cold. By the end of this letter, he's going to be begging for Timothy to hurry. Please get here before winter with my jacket. And he says, he also mentions that he's chained to the ground like a criminal. And so here he is in this pit, chained in agony. And he says, I, in order to escape this place I am in, I think of you. The place that brings me joy is to reflect on those times I had with you. Oh, I remember those missionary journeys. I, I remember spending time with you, even when you had bad times and you were crying. And I like, I pray for you night and day. This is a little tidbit. You'll see that the Bible always refers to a day night and day. It starts in Genesis, goes all the way through. I mean, Jews today still, their day is night and then day. We've sort of changed things up somewhere. So we think of a day as morning and then night. But so he's saying all day long, I'm just thinking about you. I'm remembering. And as I remember about you and I pray for you, I'm filled with joy. This is beautiful. This is all Paul needs. Like he, this is his escape is is just to think about Timothy and to continue praying for him. He continues verse five, for I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm, Sure that it is in you as well. I don't know if Paul's reflecting on that missionary journey when he he first met them. And Timothy was this young boy. And I'm totally just imagining this isn't really in the Bible. Like we we know they met, but in the way he talks about grandma and grandmother and, and just knowing the culture of hospitality, did they invite Paul into their home and take care of him during this season? But when he mentions grandma and ma Timothy, he knows these ladies. He loves these ladies. And when he thinks of them, he thinks about their great faith. And he knows that this faith that they had also resides in Timothy. He knows it's in them as well. Verse 6. For this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. I don't want to. Some people get all distracted on like, oh, this laying on of hands. Did Paul like. Break out the uh, karate kid, like, you know, broken leg, rub him up. And like, there's some magic there. I don't think that that's, I just think that that Timothy was this young man, the young kid. He accepts Christ. He walks with Paul all of these years. Paul says, God's now calling you to pastor. We're going to not pastor like eating grass, but just to to be an elder. And so they lay hands on him. They pray for him to equip him for the ministry. And they send him out to difficult situations. You just Go to First Timothy, the first chapter there. It explains the very difficult task that Timothy had. And our, our walk with the Lord, what we feel can like ebb and flow over the years. And he's saying, don't grow cold. Kindle afresh the gift of God. And I can't help but to think of a fire. I'll be the first to admit, well... We haven't exactly had the most brutal winter here in San Diego this this winter. But imagine one of our more brutal winters. Like, you know, when it dropped down below 72 a couple years ago. (laughs) When you have to start the fire. And and starting the fire, sometimes starting fires, they like, they're really, you get good wood. It's like, it's almost like you get wood sometimes and you just light a match under it for like 30 seconds and it all takes off. Then there are other times when it's like, it seems like hours of like, this wood won't start. I've put newspapers, like you're covered in charcoal. And it's like, I just wanted to start. It's like, Anna, get the gasoline. We're going to let this baby go. It's like hard to get it going. But then there are times once you get the fire going and you get that like glowing charcoal base that I don't care what kind of wood you have. You just throw it on there and it just takes. And Paul's saying, kindle afresh the gift which is in you. This is the whole, don't grow cold, Timothy. Don't grow discouraged because I'm facing death. Don't grow cold because persecution. This is where the great Bible promise in chapter four, if I can find it, I think it's chapter four. Maybe it's 
Well, we'll get to it. But it's the promise that all those who are in Christ will suffer persecution. And over the years, I've always joked that you never find that in the like the promises of God coffee table books to encourage people. And so Don, a few years, like they're laying around here somewhere. It's this beautiful, like daisy on a beautiful field. And the verse there is all those in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. I love it. It's like. And Paul says, just because your circumstances are difficult, don't waver. Trust God. The very first verse going back. Look how he introduces himself. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to this is the phrase, the promise of life. The promise of life in Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. This is written by a guy who barely has any clothes in the bottom of a dungeon, not eating, freezing cold, chained there like an animal. The promise of life. His picture doesn't seem like the picture of promise of life, does it? It doesn't. That's a. But see, his hope isn't in this life. His his hope is in Christ who conquered death. And no circumstance that you're going through is beyond God's power. Beautiful. It says, kindle afresh, verse 6. In verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. So when I look at 2 Timothy... This letter is powerful. I, I, just to sort of fly through the letter, some, some very well-known passages that you may or may not know if you'll, I have to turn the page. In, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses uh, 3 through 4, some of my favorite verses. It says, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. If you go up there, they'll talk about athletes. And in the midst of the Olympics, you see these Olympians that have so focused their life on chasing this goal that nothing gets in the way. I had to show Dan this video, and I made sure I silenced my phone so my ringer didn't go off in church. But there was this, Dave tells me about this girl, the skeleton. Have you guys seen the skeleton? That's crazy. They got like a little something around. I don't even, I want to try it one day. They go head first, 80 miles an hour down the thing. This girl gets second place. You think you'd be sad with second place. She sees she gets second place. She basically starts climbing the wall up to her family to hug her family, her son, all the kids, and to say, we did it, we did it, we did it. 13 years, we did it. She's like the sacrifices we've made, the hardships that we've been through. Paul points to the athlete, to the soldier, and he tells Timothy, don't get tangled up in the affairs of this life. You focus on Christ. If you go down to verse 15 of the same chapter, there's another. This, I think this is the Awanas verse, which I never did Awanas, but I've heard it is. Awanas throw, if you're an Awanas person, I got it wrong, just throw something at me to let me know. Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth but avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene and then he calls out some people it's like paul are you writing today or you see people haven't changed if you continue to the end of chapter 2 verse 24 the lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all Able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant to them repentance, leading to the knowledge of truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. This is what you want your pastors and those in leadership to be like, patient. But you need to be firm because you know what's at stake here. Skipping down to verse uh, 13 of chapter 3. 
But evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You, however, continue in the things that you've learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scriptures inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man or person of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We know these verses. All scriptures inspired by God. Paul on his deathbed, what he wanted us to know is this is the word of God. It's important. We need it. This is why at this church we don't go topically, not that that's necessarily bad, but we go book by book or book at a time is probably more appropriate. We're going through Timothy right now because it's God's word. It's good for us to hear. And then finally, down in chapter 4, verse 6, this, these words of Paul give me goosebumps. These are verses that I want read at my funeral when that day comes. Hopefully it's many years from now. But listen to Paul's last words. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. Now the drink offering was you get this hot fire and you'd pour the drink on it. And the drink would basically be like, like there was nothing else to give. Paul had given all. For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith in the future. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. Make every effort to come to me soon. It's powerful. I love this book because as we, it's not about a per- perfect circumstance. From a worldly perspective, everything had gone wrong, wrong in Paul's life. And as he encourages Timothy and the church and our church, his message is simple. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose the focus. Run your race that he set before you. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this letter. Lord, I thank you for Paul, this wonderful, gifted man, Lord, that you use by your your spirit to pen so many books of the Bible. And Lord, as we just begin our study here, Lord, through Second Timothy, we ask, Lord, that you would continue to guide us. We ask that you would convict us. Lord, that you would encourage us through your word. Father, I pray through this that uh, our, our fires would be kindled afresh, that our love for you would increase, that we would, um, it's not about religion or works or legalism. It's about this living relationship with our creator. We thank you, Lord, that you're greater than anything that we're going through. And so, Lord, we cast our worries, our concerns, our fears, our joys, our happiness, our families, our vocations, everything at your feet, Lord. We love you. We pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.